This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Forrett and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello there. And Cash Boyle. Hello. Hey, um, Richard, just yeah, oh, before well, we yeah. get going, yeah. um, this will be the last podcast in which we will begin it with Donald Trump introducing <laughs> us because by the time you listen to the next podcast, he will happily be sulking on a, on a golf course in Florida somewhere, Joe Biden having been uh, sworn into office. Uh, a few people have actually asked, who that Donald Trump is? Because uh, it isn't Donald Trump. It is the great Matt Ford uh, who provides the voice of Donald Trump. And Matt for, is brilliant. He, do, he, he is brilliant. He's doing spitting image stuff, isn't he? And I, um, I was lucky enough just to uh, a few years ago at Labour Conference to go to an event that he hosted. Um, and I mean, I have to say, I, it wasn't just Matt Ford that tempted me. It was put on by the Gin Association. Um, so there was plenty of gin. It was down on the, you know, the thing that goes up and down on Brighton Seafront. I don't know what it's called, um, but it was, it was, uh, it was on that, and it was, it was brilliant. And he's very funny. Check out his work. He's well, a, when I uh, asked him if if he would be, well, I, I said to him, "Could you do something for me?" And he said, "Do I need to take my top off?" <laughs> <laughs> and you said yes. I just thought in for a penny. <clears throat> well, what the listener should know is that Matt insists that we all take our tops off before we record the podcast. Um, it's it's not as bad now that we're in our bunkers uh, as it was when we used to do it face to face. I don't know. But... It's still pretty bad. <laughs> well, thank goodness Steve Anglesey is no longer on the podcast. <laughs> I, I I'm only kidding, Steve, of course. You know I love you. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Let's. Well, we should probably get to the podcast, shouldn't we? 
Um, mm. We will cover the news as always. Keep checking uh, uh, elsewhere for news because it's still breaking all around us at a rate of knots. And then the brilliant Ian Dunn will be joining us. Uh, he he now does a weekly column, of course, for the New European, and also is a fixture on Oh God, What Now podcast, which I'm sure lots of you listen to as well as just just after you've listened to us on a Friday morning, you're more than welcome to go and listen to that. Uh, we should probably also introduce Cash. Uh, well, I have. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, 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 I might have missed that. So good they introduced her twice. I Well, and ladies and gentlemen, here's Cash Boyle. Um, I did introduce Cash at the top of the podcast, Matt. You were obviously busy taking your top off at that point. Just to let uh, you know I'm on the podcast, everyone. <laughs> Every single week. Oh, it's, it's going to be one of those. <laughs> it's going to be one of those. All right. Well, listen, it's been a while since we've topped the news off on Brexit, but I thought we probably should this week. Uh it seems that um, some of that initial optimism is starting to wane a bit, isn't it? We're getting red tape and stuff. Cash, what, what, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that there was going to be, you know, red tape there. It wasn't going to be seamless. I, I think the quiet scenes at, in Dover on the 1st of January were only indicative of one thing, and that's that it was New Year's Day. It wasn't indicative of it being seamless across the board. I, I mean... The, the main issue, obviously, and this won't appease the person who thinks that I talk about being Irish too much, but the... Um, Are you the big, Irish? Nope. And I'm not on this podcast either. <laughs> like, it's all, it's all a lie. No. No, but the, the biggest issue, naturally, um, sort of in terms of you know, the more immediate things that you can see are, you know, is happening, obviously, in Northern Ireland because the, the nature of Northern Ireland's arrangement, i.e. remaining in the EU single market for goods, just creates an extra layer of red tape um, with goods getting in to Northern Ireland. And I mean, there's been a few consequences of that since, you know, January 1st. And I mean, it is easing now somewhat, but it, there's definitely been noticeable, uh, you know, empty shelves in supermarkets, for example, um, six of the first kind of, I think it was 13 or 15, pardon me. I think it was 15, six of the first 15 lorries arriving into Belfast on January the 1st were delayed because they didn't have the correct paperwork. Another example of the red tape is um, there were declarations um, required in Belfast that are meant to take 30 seconds, taking up to 12 hours. And then there was the situation as well where because there was no HMRC guidance issued to online retailers, a few of them just pulled their services from Northern Ireland, albeit temporarily. Mm. So what that kind of shows is that the part of um, this agreement that is additionally complicated because of the Northern Ireland protocol, because of Northern Ireland's special relationship, let's say, with the EU and, and with the UK, the consequences have been more seen there. Um, but, you know, even in terms of, and in a more amusing anecdotal sense, there was the story where, you know, UK drivers were having ham sandwiches confiscated at the Dutch border because they weren't allowed to bring them in. And it was just a classic example of how people, the layperson won't know exactly every single change that's going to take place and they're going to be surprised by things they can no longer do like those drivers were. So these was, a, if you didn't see this story, this was um, uh, UK lorry drivers who were filmed at the Dutch border actually um, having their ham and cheese sandwiches uh, taken off them. So um, have you seen the reactions from a uh, former Brexit party MEP to this? I've just on. got the story from uh, the Express Online. Oh, I'm keen. Uh, Which you it, appear in quite often. Not, well, subscription for life now. <laughs> uh, it's attracted the attention of former Brexit party MEP Ben Habib. He told Express.co.uk, One of Britain's greatest strengths is our common sense. 
we are famed for it, able to judge situations in the round and find a sensible solution. You would never catch a bobby confiscating someone's lunch. No doubt these Dutch border officers took pleasure in their inflexible application of EU bureaucratic madness. All I can say is, thank God we are out. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, uh, the UK's government guidance says this. Drivers travelling to the EU should be aware of additional restrictions on personal imports. You cannot bring products of an animal origin, such as those containing meat or dairy, into the EU. I mean, I've got to say, I've got to say on this one, surely there can be some kind of common sense uh, workaround here. If this is a packed lunch, I think that's a little bit different from a boot full of, um, you know, but but if you are sticks. that Brexit Party MEP who is obsessed over uh, controlling one's borders, and the rules are you can't bring in items of animal origin. You can't bring in items of animal yeah. origin. Oh, I, got, I understand. A, I understand that completely. Just, if you, you know, first you're letting in ham sandwiches, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, people are going with boots full of no. But you're like you say, if you're if those are the rules, those are the rules. And I think sort of, you know, slightly it's slightly petty of me, but I think if you are going to really show the true impact of Brexit, you have to apply the rules in a fundamentalist way. Almost the same sort of people that if um, a underage refugee uh, was found in this country um, no documentation no idea where they're from no idea who their parents are they will be saying uh-uh the rules are the oh, rules absolutely. get them back on the yeah. next absolutely. boat absolutely so um, I have I mean, no that, sympathy that is... for his position and the, and the claim he's got that the very fact that the EU has shown that it is willing and able to guard its own borders shows why we're right to be out of it when the whole argument was that being in the EU meant we couldn't control our borders, is baffling. The hypocrisy is is startling, but not surprising. Um, but but I mean, what I what I would say is if I if I I will now, the next time I drive to the EU, try and smuggle a ham sandwich in my pants, perhaps. Maybe not ham, actually. Maybe like frisked. You're going to be sort of like padded down. It's going to be. It would be very embarrassing, but it would make for a good it would make for a good video, nonetheless. Can I just make one additional point? Themed for common sense. Is, <laughs> is he serious? Yeah, I would say that the last kind of four to five years of um, Britain's <laughs> position on the geopolitical stage would not make us famed for common sense. No. And it all it all began to fall apart when Bobby's, to quote our friend Mr. Habib, stopped confiscating <laughs> ham sandwiches. Um, Michel Barnier has little sympathy, um, <laughs> perhaps not surprisingly. He has said that you know some of the you know this isn't frictionless, is it? So that some of these some of these issues will be impossible to to smooth over. He did say that um, you know he said that the, the, the this is Britain's choice, um, inevitable consequences when you leave the single market, and that's what the British wish to do. I think that's fair I mean, enough. Not wrong. He said that some of it is just glitches and breakdowns and, and problems, but uh, that will be will be sorted out in the coming weeks and months. Well, an awful um, lot of it is Tory MPs had no idea what they were signing up to. They yep. were told that there'd be no border in the Irish Sea, so they bought it. Um, they were told that there'd be completely frictionless trade, no no customs checks um, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. They didn't check it. We had um, a story this week of a fisheries minister who, when questions said that she hadn't read the um, the Brexit deal because it was published on Christmas Eve, and she was organising something like a nativity walk, whatever 
And I was thinking, can can she could she have done that and it be socially distanced and all those things? That's what I was thinking when I said I saw that. Well, I, I think I think it goes even wider, even deeper than than not reading the um, reading the deal. Frankly, I think from from day dot there has been a great swathe of our politicians and beyond who haven't been that interested in the detail. It's been simply this has got to happen. And uh, you know that that will that that lack of concern will keep coming to bite us on the arse um, for years and years to come. Yeah, when I mean. you just say this is about sovereignty, whatever the chuff that means, and nothing else, you are going to get things like this creeping up. And it's you know it's we've only got ourselves to blame, um, frankly. Um, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, with that as well, I, you're you're so right, Richard. And I think. What they do is they hide behind the time pressure that was on sort of signing off the deal as, as a reason to not be invested in the detail. But the reality is, you know, Boris's administration, coupled with the interests of Brexiteers, their vested interest was only ever in that three you know, word slogan, get Brexit done. The detail would have been irrelevant whether we had two weeks to get this deal signed off or 20 years. Absolutely. And one of the biggest mistakes was the timescales that we put on this from the, from the very beginning. And it was a mistake. It was a trap that was fallen into by Theresa May as well. You know, she painted herself into a corner before she'd even started as as prime minister. And all the intelligent um, conservative MPs who would have been able to, even at, at pace, go line by line through a lot of this legislation and, and see where the difficulties were going to be and see where the blockage was going to be, were all kicked out of the Tory party by yeah. Boris Johnson to be replaced by a bunch of suppliant morons, mm. um, which was always going to ease the passage through but mean that when these problems arose, they were going to find it difficult to get their heads around it. Quite, quite. Um, another thing which is starting to gain traction, um, certainly on my Twitter feed, is this uh, is this revelation that the, the government actually didn't want to allow musicians, who obviously make a great deal of their money from touring these days because no one buys CDs anymore, um, visa-free access to to the EU. Now, initially, I think it was suggested by the Department of Culture that um, I think the quote was that they pushed for a more ambitious agreement with the EU. But uh, an unnamed source who was allegedly close to the negotiations said that um, the UK simply said no, um, and the reason given was um, we're stopping freedom of movement. Uh, I mean. <laughs> It's extraordinary kick in the teeth for the arts, um, a, a sector which is already on its knees. Uh, cash, I mean, is there any, any any sense at all behind this nonsense? First of all, before I answer this question, I'm very sorry if people can hear a slight background noise. There is construction work going on near where I am. So I'm very sorry about that. There's not really... Just kind of like a dull noise. Well, you just just open a window and we'll all do a big shush. <laughs> I wish that would work, but it hasn't worked for the last couple of days. So I'm really sorry about that, guys. Um, hopefully it'll stop in a second or two. But yeah, so I mean, I, I think on this it is pretty unforgivable. It's not. It's the reason that it's unforgivable for me is that it's not that the EU said no. It's that the offer was there and they just refused it. And they refused it not with the artists' interests in mind or with their livelihoods in mind, but their much decimated livelihoods in mind. They refused it on the basis that. They basically want to deny EU artists the same rights when they visit here. So it's so for me, it's almost like they're throwing an already ravaged industry further against the wall just to basically show that we are leaving or yeah. we have left. You know, we're restricting freedom of movement. We don't care how much money 
you know, or how much of your livelihood you could generate from these from these tours. We're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to, let's be honest, get back on your feet. And what it does show beyond the fact that it's just really like ignorant in many ways, or not ignorant, sorry, it's really, I suppose, dismissive of the importance of their livelihoods. It just it just shows what we already know and that, that there is no real investment in the arts and industry. Like they don't, there's no real understanding within like the higher echelons of government how important these industries are not only to the people who occupy them but to us as human beings who've been cooped up inside for the last year or however long and yeah it just again it just feels like a like you said Richard a compounding kick in the teeth for an industry that's already been so ravaged so neat not like so needlessly but quite needlessly by this because nothing's been done to help them so far and this doesn't help them either. And we're not talking, you know, I, 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 this is not me being sympathetic towards Bono um, or, well, Bono's not even English, is he? But, you know, this is not the, it's not the big, big bands here. It's the, it, it's the touring um, musicians in, in orchestras who are probably not getting paid a great deal. It's, it, it's these bands that are just starting up and trying to get their music heard and would normally have um, the ability to do smaller tours across, across Europe and build that fan base. It's, it just makes everything so more tricky and so much more expensive. And, um, it, you know, it, it really does feel like a, 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 I, I, I hope that the pressure can overturn it because I think it will make a, um, an incredible difference. Um, talking of um, superstars, we've got, a, we've got Romain's own Bono joining us now, Ian Dunt. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> Have you got the sunglasses on? Absolutely. I, of course, I've been in my house for about five months now and I, I've barely removed my sunglasses. It's very important <laughs> that, you know, the missus doesn't look at me directly in the eyes. That's part of our rock star arrangement. Absolutely. Well, welcome and thank you. And since the last time we talk, uh, spoke on the, on the pod, you are now a fully fledged new European um, columnist. So congratulations and thank you for your oh, good work. You. Thanks for having me. And, um, and this week you've been talking about uh, the government's sort of chaotic response to everything that's going on right now and I guess um we're seeing that we've just been talking about a sort of Brexit which is something that we've talked about less and less on this show bizarrely over the last <laughs> sort of year um but maybe you could pull out a few points from from that from that column Ian and just give us give us your view on where this has all gone wrong and if it is too late to to turn it around yeah, I mean, it sort of adds up to itself, really, because it, it, it isn't too late to turn it around. Well, I mean, it's too late to save the people who've already died from coronavirus, but it's not too late for the government to buck up and actually treat the next phase of this crisis sensibly. The reason that they don't do it is because of a fundamental failure in how they process information, which is basically that they don't listen to critics. Right. So, I mean, you saw that with Boris Johnson right from the start. I mean, he purges um, the Conservative Parliamentary Party of any moderate figures. His selections for cabinet are all based on loyalty to him and then Dominic Cummings back in those days and commitment to the Brexit cause as he saw it. And that's pretty much indicative of the kind of echo chamber that he operates. So now we look, what, what is it that they do wrong with coronavirus? It's the same mistake over and over. It's you keep on doing the right thing two to four weeks too late. And that is the gap, you know, the, the information comes to them from scientific advisors, we see it ourselves, you listen to experts, they say this is what needs to happen. And two to four weeks later, the government does it. And in those two to four weeks, infection spreads, people get sick, people die. And that is at the heart of all the things they've done wrong throughout this process. 
they should be able to change that, right? And yet you look at what they did in this last lockdown, you look at what they did with schools, these events at the beginning of the year are identical to the errors that they made in March last year. And the reason for that is they will not learn, they do not have the capacity to learn because they do not listen to critical voices. This is basically echo chamber government. This is what it looks like, and we're living through it right now in the worst possible circumstances. Yeah. I mean, last week I was calling for the army to be involved. We were talking to Alistair Campbell about it, and, and subsequently they, they have been. But again, I think the perfect example is the, the vaccine rollout, and maybe that's gathering a little bit of speed now. I don't know. I just wait for the next catastrophe to, to strike. <laughs> but why, you know, again, these plans should have been being made before we even had a vaccine, shouldn't they? We should have been ready to go. And uh, I mean, by which I mean... Um, not necessarily up in the manufacturing. I see that there's, there's wider issues there. But we should have had pharmacies signed up. We should have had the volunteers in place. We should have had these mega hubs, you know, all signed off and ready to go as soon as that first vaccine came to Britain. Um, and it seems like it seems like we're playing catch-up all the time. And a government that's firefighting, and I could give them a little bit of forgiveness for firefighting in March and April last year, Mm-hmm. But the but but the coronavirus has has been around for a year now, and it seems still like the government is caught out on a on a weekly bit daily basis. Frankly, yeah, you know it's funny, right? But even thinking about March last year, like I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were you know we we were doing a work meeting, and someone came in and went, "Well, look, this is our last in person work meeting. We'll start doing them by Zoom." This is like early March, and I remember just feeling instinctively like that was preposterous and a bit hysterical. You know, this nonsense kind of English response to things. And within two, that was, I, I keep on thinking back to my feelings at that moment, because it's how I remind myself of how many people have continued to felt over the last year. And instead, what happened was you just realized, no, this is a, you know, you have to really fundamentally alter what you assume to be normal life. And yet we, most of us did that in early March, and we still had to wait weeks the government to catch up. I mean, that was bad enough at the time. And, and I struggled to be sympathetic towards them, given that most people around me weren't making that same error. To still have it happening now is beyond my comprehension. And I mean, the thing that really gets me is, is Christmas and the schools over the last month. You know, that could not have been made clearer to them that the, the one scenario in which infection is most likely to spread and do the most damage is a multi-generational event held inside where people are drinking and talking directly at each other. We spend way too much time online worrying about people jogging in parks and things like that, when actually the truth is there's very little infection in that kind of scenario. What you need to be worried about is people inside talking directly to each other, especially when they've had alcohol and they're likely to talk at a higher volume, they're likely to shout, to laugh, to do all of those things that spread infection. And yet the government basically allowed it to happen in whole parts of the country. You know, right now, when we look at where infection rates are still going up, it's those places that were in tier two, that um, were opened up for Christmas. You look at places like London that were closed down for Christmas and infection rates are starting finally to slow. Mm. That is a direct government culpability. The people that are dying now will die in the next two weeks. It is as a result of government failure. The same with the schools, the idea in the worst of all possible worlds, when you know that the opening of schools is spreading infection by having those kids go, in many cases from the Christmas event into school, mingle with each other and then take it into a new household. To allow that to happen for one day because of your complete inability to come up with a consistent, firm policy on this area is just simply unforgivable. There's no other way of looking at it. There's no more charitable interpretation to give them. It is just the most rank incompetence with the highest consequences imaginable. Um, I I found, I'm sure we've all got an opinion on this. I found uh, Pretty Patel's um, press conference this week 
um, both uh, terrifying and hilarious, probably in equal measures. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm getting increasingly upset by um, the focus on people who are breaking the rules. Now, we're all journalists. We all know that if someone has a, a house party that is attended by 100 people, that is a news story, whereas 100 houses where no one has a party isn't a news story. Um, mm-hmm. But but the, the vast majority of people are doing their bit, and yet I feel like Priti Patel is rubbing her hands together um, like like some you know minor despot in and <laughs> wanting to send wanting to send the troops in with their batons to to you know beat up grandmas who were sat on the seafront. Um, I, I mean, how how do we get this response right? Because I'm not one for a lot of rules, and you know Boris Johnson cycling seven miles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Five miles has sort of been mentioned, but not really. Do we actually need a rule, no more than five miles, or do we actually just need a bit of common sense? I think the problem is, um, <clears throat> Richard, a lot of the time they've been trying to fight a pandemic like it's an election campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the start of this, they they didn't immediately hold the daily press briefings. Um, they basically treated it like, you know, they, they, they would brief against the, the virus to Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times, <laughs> you know, try and get a good headline <laughs> against it, which <clears throat> didn't really work because the virus doesn't tend to read the Sunday Times. It's a telegraph so event- reader. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Um, so eventually they kind of caved in and agreed to be led by the science to a certain point, but it was always campaigning was the part of that you always sense that a lot more um effort was being put into what the next three word slogan was going to be than actively having a proper health campaign against this second part of that is whenever there's been a clear and obvious idea um about when a lockdown should take place and the strength of that lockdown they have panicked if that has been called for by Keir Starmer or already introduced by Nicola Sturgeon because that to them looks weak in the eyes of the electorate that Boris Johnson has brought in something that the leader of the opposition called for in PMQs a week, two weeks before or ahead of the Holyrood elections Nicola Sturgeon has done. They don't want to be seen to be following Scotland. And yes, this week we've seen an increasing emphasis on attacking pretty low level breaches of, um, of, of the regulations because it looks strong, you know, they, they, it looks great. They get, they get a great splash on the, on the front of the Daily Express. You know, it's great for the conservative brand. Pretty Patel is playing to an audience because Boris Johnson's not going to be there forever. It's been absolute capital P politics throughout, rather than it being, as we've seen in places who've handled it much better in, in East Asia and Australasia, where it's been treated as a public health crisis. I think that's right. There's a real, um, fundamental failure of logic and the argument that they put across right you can see it it was was a headline in the sun this morning of saying government is worried that the public aren't following the rules therefore they might have to tighten the rules now that doesn't make any sense because the reality is that the public are mostly following the rules overwhelmingly so actually there is still quite a lot of loose space in the rules that we didn't have back in march you know being able to go grab a coffee or being able to go exercising with a friend now that's not people breaking the rules that's people doing precisely what it is that the rules allow them to do. 
The government's reason for following this narrative isn't because it believes this logical fallacy. It's because it is playing a PR game. And it, by the way, is a very effective PR game when you look at the polling of saying, look, this is thinking ahead to the, you know, to the inquiry that would eventually take place on their ineptitude. We're saying it wasn't our fault. It was that the public would, weren't following the rules. The public just weren't behaving properly. And that's why it spread. So it's an effort essentially to shift the culpability from policymakers to the public themselves. And dispiritingly, the public are pretty open to that. Like you look at polling over and over again, they blame the public. They blame themselves effectively, or at least other people around them, more than they blame the government. So I think that's a very concerted effort to do it. They know it's nonsense. They say it anyway. Yeah, us and them is very, um, very powerful in that sense. It was it? an interesting piece um, by Katie Balls on the Spectator <clears throat> online, who we don't, you know, normally um, quote approvingly, uh, but she's very well connected. And, and there was a suggestion that one of the advertising lines they were looking at was something around the lines of going for a takeaway coffee could kill. Yeah. Well, cost that's a life. Expensive. Cost a life. That's expensive. You know, to, to advertise across the media that to um, that to go out and buy takeaway coffee could kill. It may be effective, but it's going to cost more money. What's not costing a lot of money is legislation to say shut the places doing takeaway coffee. But, and that comes exactly back to what Ian was saying. People are not breaking the rules by buying a takeaway coffee. Places are being allowed to open up and sell that because you have not explicitly stopped them from doing it. And most people, because they're human beings, and this is, this is how we think, look at what can we do when, when we're in a situation like yeah. this, inevitably. Um, but rather than take those, what they might think are unpopular decisions or something that they might want you know, further down the line, not have to prop up certain hospitality businesses, rather than actually stopping these people from selling it, they're going and giving a strongman speech in front of the cameras in, in, in the late afternoon saying, you've got to stop doing this or talk about, you know, ludicrous advertising campaigns that, that buying coffee kills. I've got to say that the, if, if nothing else, the coronavirus has given us some spectacular political slogans, hasn't it? Don't kill granny. <laughs> And, um, you know, cost of coffee might cost a life. I mean, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? If I could just sort of step in, I mean, it's the most obvious sort of tactic in the world in many ways. The death tolls keep rising. The infection rate keeps rising. This, you know, the revelations one after the other are horrifying. And the government, you know, are panicking because anyone with a semblance of rationality will look at the leaders, in inverted commas, of this country, i.e. the government, and attribute the blame there but what they need to do to try and ameliorate that threat is to basically push back and demonize the public now it's an obvious tactic but as you've all said it works incredibly effectively so they have put in place as matt was saying in terms of like or ian and matt were both saying in terms of loosened rules loosened restrictions compared to march they've put those in place they haven't closed places that you can go and get coffee for example they haven't limited your ability to exercise with one person outside they, as the leaders, have made these rules. They have looked for the tiniest and arguably the less significant breaches of those, and they've used them as almost like capital to demonize the public. It happens if you look at any other aspect of life outside of the pandemic. Let's just take the welfare state, for example. It's, it's not the fault of the government that universal credit is so low. It's the fault of the member of the public who can't make that incredibly low amount of money stretch. So they are always, this government, they are always looking to demonise the public because that allows them to evade, to a degree, responsibility. And it's really, really insidious when you look at the numbers of people that are dying. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, I'm just going to 
pivot slightly uh, to to talk about the vaccine um the vaccine itself now it, it, one thing that she's gaining a little bit of traction here and i wonder what your thoughts are on this is the way that um the public has been is being vaccinated in indonesia they they are vaccinating the people who are most likely to have um connections with other people so young people basically and people of working age and old people will be last i know that that's certainly the case in china as well where they're vaccinating workers what are your thoughts on that are we doing it the wrong way around or are we are we doing it correctly i should point out here that all of my thoughts on these subjects are derived exclusively from experts i know that um that's not very fashionable now <laughs> but all of these cases it's just like no, no just just tell me what it is what the, what the things look like and i haven't heard any british experts the people that i speak to proposing that that kind of attitude because the, the thing is we've got to bear in mind is we don't really know how good the vaccine is at stopping infection at the moment what we know is that it stops you getting very sick but the initial understanding was that it would do almost nothing to stop infection. There's now some signs that it might be more effective at stopping infection than we thought. But ultimately, you, you still, you know, you get the vaccine, you'll still be getting COVID. It's just that you're not going to get very, very sick of it. And yeah. on that basis, it seems extremely logical to start with the oldest people and start with the most vulnerable and start with those who are caring for them, rather than to, to go for the young. Um, so I haven't seen, I haven't heard anything yet. I'll, I'll tell you if, if that starts changing, but I haven't heard anything yet that would indicate that that would be a good direction to follow. I imagine, Cash, you're quite up for the young being vaccinated first, you being uh, being still in your 20s. I mean, just about 29, but I'm going to hold <laughs> on to it for as long as I can. No, I mean, I feel like it's, um, like Ian said, it probably is slightly uh, less fashionable now to actually follow expert views when coming to your conclusions. But I think everything he said there is is spot on. I mean, the interesting thing with the vaccine is that, the tar- my, my thing with the vaccine, I wonder what Ian thinks about this, the targets set out by Boris Johnson or the ambitions set out by him because he's, you know, he's infamous for over-promising and under-delivering. And I was just wondering, Ian, do you think that the targets that he has set are achievable and realistic? The honest answer is I don't know. I, I can't pretend to go into these subjects without carrying with me what I think is like a well-informed empirical bias, which is that when Boris Johnson says a date, he won't hit it. You know, we've gone through the entire thing. I think, you know, the beginning, he was like, this whole thing will be over in six weeks. It'll be over by the summer. It'll be over by Christmas, over by Easter. So as soon as he started coming out with these months of like late February, he would, uh, you would be sort of trusting to the point of lunacy, I think, to take him at his words on these things. However, so far, and what I read about supply and what I read about their capacity for delivery is actually relatively positive so far. This is an area that the government hasn't catastrophically messed up in. There are other countries doing better. I mean, Israel, for instance, is an almost an actual extraordinary velocity of of how they've done this thing. But the early signs are that that so far the government rollout has actually been pretty effective. But, you know, red flag on all of this, because that is very much against the way in which they normally behave. And we may need to check back on it pretty soon. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, well, listen, Ian, I think we've probably kept you for, for far too long already. I know you're a very busy man. You've got to go off and be be Remains Bono a little bit more. It's true. Um, I mean, which for that, I mean, you're right. I have to keep on sitting at my house, staring at my phone, as I've been doing for the last few months, <laughs> and I will for the next few months. So, yes, terribly busy, terribly busy. I like the idea of you just sitting in your flat with sunglasses on, trying to look at your phone, but not being able to three. <laughs> <laughs> If people want to know what the sort of the the, the pro-European Bono, the life is like, 
that is what your life is like in my mind. That is de- <laughs> that is definitely I, I I I mean almost certainly the case. Um, <laughs> well, Bono, what an absolute pleasure as always. Please do come back on and uh, and chat to us again soon. And uh, thank you, thank you very much for for all you do for the paper and. As soon, listeners, you've listened to this podcast, go over and, and give uh, Oh God, What Now a listen to as well. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having me, guys. All Thanks right, Ian. All the best, Thanks, mate. Ian. Hey, guys, what did you have for lunch? I haven't had lunch yet. No, I haven't I mean, had lunch yet. Me neither. Oh. I, you see, I, I planned ahead, unlike our wonderful government, and had my lunch before the podcast. Um, and I had, um, I went to Marks and Spencer's, and I got a uh, bacon and chicken wrap and a can of San Pellegrino and uh, some cheese taste. They're called cheese tasters. They're Watsits, basically. And do you know how much that came to? £30. £30? <laughs> <laughs> Gee whiz, it is more I, expensive I in London. It's very, diff- it's very difficult to know what you get for thirty pounds for your uh, for your lunch these <laughs> or days. Or certainly what tries to be sold as being worth thirty pounds. Well, quite no, it was it was about it was around five pounds, um, which uh, I think we're probably coming at this same topic from Does the that different count angles. As essential food shopping. Well, I, if I don't eat, I die. I guess. Are you calling me out here? And then if no, no, no. who hosts the podcast. I, I, I'm just unsure. I mean, all right. Listen, I'll tell you earlier, the but, I but did my the... full weekly shop as well. All right. Okay. Happy I, I now. Listeners are ready for this content. I really. I don't. didn't just do a full weekly shop. Actually, now I did a whole month shop <laughs> in M and S. Just I had to hire a van. Well, that's probably breaking one of your bloody rules as well, isn't it, Withers? <laughs> um, Listen, I'm using this as an example to get onto the next thing, which is Marcus Rashford and um, what has been uh, probably the story of the week, really, hasn't it? Um, the, these pictures, these terrifying pictures, frankly, um, yeah. if you're, a, if you're a, a parent whose child gets free school lunches, um, of, the, of these, some people were calling them hampers initially. I mean, crikey, <laughs> oh, O'Reilly, I, if you've got a hamper like that, some of the pictures, I'm sure there was some some falsification of pictures in there, but the one certainly that has done done the rounds and and well, I, I suppose if, was was if, atrocious. If, if, if the police in Lancashire say that a hot drink's a picnic, then you could argue that two <laughs> frubs, a couple of manky uh, bananas, and a, a couple of slices of cheese might be a hamper. I mean, yeah. if, if all those things don't make it a hamper, it's the sliced pepper, half a pepper, that makes it a hamper. What kid do you know that wants to eat pepper? By the way, that is going straight in the bin, now, isn't it? Um, I, I think the, the I think the the shocking thing on this, however, was how um, for me and my moment of the week actually not that we picked moments of the week, but my moment of the week was in PMQs when Keir Starmer said, "I'm sure the Prime Minister will agree it's disgraceful," and Boris stood up with a big grin on his face and agreed it was disgraceful, only for Keir Starmer to point out that they were actually getting more than what the Department of Education had suggested they should be getting in these, uh, in, in, in place of the vouchers. If you look at the picture of another picture that's been doing the rounds has been the Chartwell's kind of like list of things versus the government's guidance. And like you say, the government's guidance was actually more scant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and and, and that, that, that really is horrifying. Um, now, 
you know, we get back onto the debate of um, can you use uh, can you use uh, children's free meal vouchers to buy crack? I would uh, suggest that you probably can't. Um, but this is just once more um, government shooting itself in the foot. And um, I, a footballer, I know that uh, he welcomed Chartwell. I think they called that the on board at the time. But I don't think we can blame him for these uh, these these pretty crappy um, food packages and once again Marcus Rashford although he didn't have much of a game on Tuesday night is running rings around the, around the government Matt. Yeah and it's interesting that the, the, um, the Conservative press backlash against him is just starting now and he didn't have a, a great game and so the next day the Telegraph put a tweet oh. out saying that he missed a number of passes during the game and is he being distracted now by his food campaigning? <laughs> I mean I, I imagine that Marcus Rashford can chew gum and walk at the same time it's, it's, it was quite uh, it was quite nasty really and a lot of the responses to it were as nasty as I suspect the person who wrote the original tweet hoped that they would be. Now it's, it's another um, immediate government U-turn. It was embarrassing for them. You're right, uh, Keir Starmer handled it um, particularly well. I don't think it it got the landing in the media that it would have done had there not been the Rashford factor. Um, But certainly uh, Boris Johnson set himself up for a fall by saying it was disgraceful when it was exactly what his own Department for Education has been saying. Um, The DfE are not having a good pandemic. Um, And this was the latest example of that. There will be plenty more of them. I mean, to give Boris Johnson his marginal dues, like he's not going to be particularly sympathetic to this cause, given that he doesn't actually know how many children he has. Um, <laughs> so therefore, he might just, you know, if he doesn't really know if there's question marks over how many children he actually has. The provision of free school meals for children, I feel like it's not going to be the closest concern to his mind. I mean, I, the, the weaponization of child poverty, it really does just like put a lump in my throat in the sense that, this is not the first time that this this has been a recurring issue in many different forms throughout the whole pandemic it was first of all it was marcus rashford that forced the initial u-turn to even provide the meals during the holidays and now it's his involvement coupled with obviously opposition pressure that has enforced yet another u-turn i mean we need to look at this for what it is the government the government if left to its own devices would have a willingly allowed children to starve during the holidays and then when they were forced to make some provision, if there hadn't if there hadn't been an intervention again, they would have willingly allowed those hampers to be circulated and said that they were doing their job. I mean, what I think I said the other day, like on social media, basically when you when you feel like there isn't a further low they can stoop to, or if there isn't another line that can be crossed, just the way that they have dealt with one of the most insidious of uh, you know insidious things in, in respect of child food poverty the way that they've handled that just really is indicative of their identity mm. overall it's mm. not that they're you know trying to humble their enemies or they're trying to score political points against fully functioning adults they're basically almost victimizing children with these policies and it's there's when i mean i'm not a fan of this government anyway but for me it's a particular low it's yeah, also, I, I, I agree. Sorry, it's, Matt. A, it's an odd ditch to die in, isn't it? In, 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 <laughs> it really in, is. In terms of the <laughs> amount of the money that the government is spending during this pandemic, the, the amount that it costs to provide preschool meals for children is, it's tiny. You know, it's, it, it's, it barely registers. So it seems a very, very odd ditch in which it's used to die. And you know, I, think, for, I think it really, oh, sorry, Richard, go on. No, no, Kashko. 
I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with Matt. It's a really odd ditch in which to die in. But given what we, given what we know, I think it's quite an obvious one because really, when you consider the not all children, but children who were on free school meals, let's say pre the pandemic, where it's not that they're on free school meals as a result of their parents losing their jobs or or anything like that. Children who have been on free school meals perhaps because their parents aren't working or their parents are on low level you know jobs that don't obviously pay enough for them to not warm free school meals there's a huge demographic within the tory party and i was thinking of one of our previous you know villains of the week ben bradley just as an example but there's a massive faction within the tory party who ultimately believe that those feeding those children is the job of the parents and if the parents can't do it then it's automatically the parents fault no questions no analysis and to almost for the children to bear the consequences of that is actually probably okay because really if these parents can't afford to feed their children even during a pandemic then really are they any use to society and i genuinely believe it's that cut and dry in terms of what certain tories think yeah and i i mean the thing the thing that gets me i think as a i mean there wasn't a lot of um you know i don't want to go into my tales of war but um there wasn't a lot of money in my household when i was a kid and i can imagine how distraught my mother would have been if um you know if that had arrived to feed me for a week and i'm also a father now thank goodness my children um don't have any worries with regards to where their next meal is coming from but i, I can just I, I, it does it it just pings doesn't it inside you know imagine that it comes and you think off oh, something i don't have, something else that i don't have to worry about you know something that i can say that sorted and then you open it and you've got a little bit of pasta and some sorry or whatever it's called i mean what, what even is that stuff i mean do kids eat that it's, I have no idea. It's kind of, it feels very 80s, doesn't it? It feels like yeah. something that you would have been offered by your gran when you went around in 1986 or something. Is it like a fruit loaf or something like that? And it is put... like a fruit loaf. Yeah, they might as well have just chucked in like a, a, a trio as well or a penguin. <laughs> they could have done, well, I tell you what, we should have, we should focus on this because you could do themed, themed children's school meals. You could have school, you could have uh, 80s school meals. Do you know what? Adults would pay for that, wouldn't they? We should launch a we should launch a business. Oh well, when this is all over, um, and journalism has completely gone tits up. Oh, don't um, worry, I've got that sorted. I've got uh, that. Yeah, I think I might open a 1980s school dinner um, themed restaurant in Shoreditch. That would that would I'm telling you now um, be uh, an 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 absolute winner. Um, and uh, suet. Have you had suet since you left school? I didn't have suet at school. Oh my god, I did. Oh, what's suet? What? Oh, it's like a sort of oh, it's like a doughy sort of awful, awful pastry. Um, yeah, it's I've really. Heard of that. Is that is that is it? Must is be a it, northern thing. Oh, be. is is that what they encase um, steak and kidney pudding in? That kind of thing. Is. Yes, oh, I have. Okay. Yes, I have, and I and I have had it since school in in that form. Yeah. Yeah, but we we used to get a dollop of it. That was literally it. Our school meals were not up to much. The puddings were all right. I'll tell you who else has got my back up this week. Sean Bailey, who, who claims that homeless people could save up <laughs> £5,000 to buy a deposit for a house. Oh, my word. What are they, I... what, what are they, are they carrying £5,000 worth of savings around in, in coins that have been given yeah, to Yeah, they're them? all just wearing massive, like, sort of, like, fanny packs across their waist. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, all the dollar... I mean, he is a word that rhymes with banker. And, um... <laughs> And I just, Sean Bailey is a. I cannot believe he is the. He's a Conservative candidate for Mayor of London, yeah. and 
I feel to him that there was a when Ed Miliband was the leader of Labour, Bill Bailey had a joke that he was a bit like a plastic bag stuck in a tree. Nobody knows how it got there, but nobody can be bothered getting it down either. <laughs> and that's kind of like with Sean Bailey. I have no idea how a man so comically inept has managed to win the Conservative nomination for Mayor of London. When the, you know the Tories did prove. It is possible for a Conservative to win London. It, it takes a certain personality and it takes a certain strategy, you know, the donut strategy of focusing on the on the, the outskirts rather than in zones one, two and three. Um, but he, uh, this apart, he's also spent a lot of time online boasting about what he's going to do for the train station in Watford. Oh, my God, what, yeah. That, what, not even fall under the Mayor of London? You know, oh, yeah. I mean, this was spectacular. There. What, what should we do about homeless people? Well, they should buy houses. Well, I just really... love that. I just, I, I've got this great vision in my head of this, you know, poor homeless soul with a, with a cardboard sign saying, saving up for a deposit for a house, you know. Um, Bailey, in my view, is the worst. He's the worst kind of hypocrite. He dines out, and he basically has tried to build his very loosely termed political career on the fact that he has come from, obviously, I guess, is adversity too strong word? But he certainly hasn't. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he he very much leverages that against his ascendancy, if you like, and tries to make it you know, appear like he's so impressive to have achieved against all the odds. He he uses that, he weaponizes that all the time mm. and he makes that a big part of his political identity. But by the same token, he comes out with things like that, that completely in terms of the, um, what he said about homeless people being able to save for a mortgage, he expresses sentiments like that that show that whatever his background was, he has absolutely no connection to it now because the reality is anybody with any semblance of connection to normality or a background that's less than, super affluent would never come out with such ridiculous nonsense because they'd be in touch with reality so for me he's the worst kind of person he basically tries to like sell himself as a certain type of person that people should get behind because of who he is where he's come from what he's overcome to get to where he is but actually he's just as elitist and classist and detached as any politician who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth i think the thing is that i i would suggest actually that your average 2.4 children family would struggle to save five thousand pounds never mind never mind the people at the very bottom of the um economic ecostream and, and living in london i mean you know um getting five thousand pounds together is is a struggle for most yeah. working people i mean um, none of my friends can do it we're all comparatively similar ages and we're all none of us have children um and we all have have decent jobs and none of us can do it so you know to even say that to the likes of my demographic is a bit far-fetched, but to say it to one of the most disadvantaged, you know, groups in society is just absolutely absurd. I'd say what we should do though, we should, we should, um, we should go to a, to a bank when they're, when they've reopened with 5,000 pounds in 10 P's and 20 P's in a, you know, in that van that I hired to do my weekly show with M&S <laughs> and say, I've come to get a mortgage because you, even if, even if a homeless person did have 5,000 pounds, they won't be able to get a mortgage anyway, because they haven't got a bank account and got an address. I mean, there's any number of reasons why this guy is a complete pillock. He's a complete um, buffoon. Like he's, this is the, it is just like, like the thing with Watford just was so, when I, when I remember watching the video, because you, you, obviously people have their own views and city can and, and that's, you know, that's by the by. But 
Sean Bailey basically makes it his entire political strategy to criticize every move that he can make, which, you know, criticizing your opposition is not like a new political strategy at all. But he does it with a straight face, with a degree of attempted authenticity in the same breath as he says, let's go to Watford, an area outside my remit, and sort of suggest how I'm going to make this station better for Londoners. And it just, there is a degree of like, he, he's either oblivious to how much of an idiot he is, or he doesn't care and thinks it's actually all, all publicity is good publicity. I think either way, he's oblivious, but he's I, definitely an idiot. I think he's an idiot. It's interesting. I'm, I'm looking um, I'm looking over at my my bookshelf from here, and I can see my copy of For the Record by David Cameron. I don't know if, if, if either or both of you have, have read it. Yeah. But a large proportion um, of that that book, that memoir, is Cameron slapping himself on the back about how he managed to single-hand, well, him and George Osborne transform the Conservative Party into a, 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 a liberal Tory party, um, comfortable with the world as it is, not harking back to how it was, um, a confident, all-encompassing party. And you look at the people at the top of it now and you think, mate, <laughs> what on earth are you talking well, about? Well, it just proves how quickly things can change in politics. We saw it with the Labour Party and and I think we I think we've still got somewhere to go with the with the Tories. Well, I don't I think just, it, I don't think it did change. It was no, it, I it think was, it was it was a, it, it was a veneer. A, yeah, yeah, it was a it was facade veneer. to some extent. I think you I think you're right there. Um, Lambeth Labour Council, I think, uh, sort of summed it up. Ed Davy uh, said, uh, famously, people living in poverty usually do have five thousand pounds lying around. It's amazing it hasn't occurred to them to simply buy a London house. And I, <laughs> I was wondering, and just before we have a little break, I was wondering who the who the best, not the one who's going to win, but who the best mayoral candidate is now. That's a good point. That's a good question. I should say. I, I mean, I, I think they're all they're all flawed. I, yeah. We've 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 done. I think we've we've done Bailey, um, Khan. I think gets a pretty free ride from a lot of people in London. I'm sorry for people outside London for being London-centric. We do try to avoid this. But I think he's well, the first... I, you know, the mayor of London is important. It, it, it is, in, although I'd, I'd actually... I mean, this is what I think is a negative for him, is I don't really think he's made the, the most of his pulpit at all. No, you know, he has. When, yeah, you, really when you look at what, what Andy Burnham uh, has done and how he's Absolutely. managed to craft a, a much newer role to make himself a, a fairly sizable um, national figure during this yeah. pandemic, Khan has been... I think quite ineffectual in using the media. I think he's been Agreed. quite ineffectual at using the even those limited powers he's got. I, I, but I think he gets a pass from a lot of Londoners because he's the first person to hold the role of elected mayor of London who's not a complete and utter arsehole. Yes. Yeah, that does that does sort of give that does give him a little bit of leeway, doesn't it? But as you said, Matt, it's it does kind of create the perception, at least, if not the reality, that he doesn't quite get held not held to account but he certainly doesn't base the same criticism as perhaps he would if he was an arsehole but when, it's difficult when to point to what, job, what he's I mean, done sorry matt so it's, it's difficult to point to what he's actually achieved yeah um, i mean obviously very little during the pandemic and he's certainly not used what should be quite a sizable pulpit to make a case for london i know he, he got he got um the tfl by bailoff signed off but um so bailout signed off blip 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 um, but prior to that, you know, he, he he made it possible to take as many bus journeys as you wanted within an hour for the cost of for the cost of one one bus journey, <laughs> and that's yeah. pretty much it. Um, obviously, the Lib Dem um, 
candidate, Richard, you'll know well. Um, Louisa yes, that's Porritt. right. T- Twitter is convinced that myself and Louisa Porritt are brother and sister. N- no one has ever suggested we're married, by the way, <laughs> only that we're brother and sister. Uh, I don't know. I mean, clearly that is because why would um, young Lib Dem politician Louisa Porritt want to be married to some awful hack like me? We're not married, by the way, and we're also not brother and sister. But uh, I, I interviewed Louisa for the print edition, and you can find it online. Um Prior to uh, lockdown two, it would have been kind mm. of autumn. So we, we did actually do it in, in person. The only person I've interviewed in person since since COVID reared its head. Um, and she's clearly she's clearly um, very bright, um, quite an impressive figure and someone who's going places within the Lib Dems as a party, although you could argue how, you know, how Not much difficult. going places that is, is at the moment. Um, I think it's fair to say that she hasn't, fleshed out a lot of her policies um she talks a lot about um using the the office space which isn't being used now and probably won't be used in the future in the city of london to provide affordable housing without in really to my mind that isn't set out in any way yeah at least sean really set that. out his policy <laughs> <laughs> yeah Why don't i mean to be fair he's set it out it's ludicrous <laughs> They can work um, together cross party. They, you know, she could get the office space cleared, and he could get all the five grand mortgages set up. You know, for these. It could work. Called affordable homes. It could. It could work. Well, I, I, I have to say that I think um, I, I, I was sort of angling at what we thought about Louisa Porritt, um when when I kicked off this London Merrill slight chat. But um, I, and I, you know, I do. I, I have seen. I have seen a few bits that she's done, and and I agree, she's obviously got no chance of winning. Um, but but I think I think potentially she's got a got a, a decent shelf life in politics. I think she's made a an interesting start to her political career on a on a bigger basis. Because you're just saying that because it's your sister and wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do live in East Anglia, <laughs> <laughs> from Yorkshire as well. I mean, um, okay, let's have a little break. We'll be right back after this. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. Um, I guess we should just get straight on to Cash's Cash and Burn. Okay, let's do it. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, ever since I sort of came onto the podcast, there's been so many different candidates that could have filled this each week. Um, but for, for this week, I wanted to go with, I mean, he's not a villain of the week. He's a villain of a lifetime, but uh, it's our friend Nigel Farage. Um, because obviously people may have seen that the Electoral Commission has approved his and Brexiteer Richard Tice's application to change the Brexit Party's name to, I believe it's called Reform UK, which I momentarily got mixed up with Lawrence Fox's party. Um but again, I, he, the whole story around this is that he basically wants to recruit a thousand candidates to stand in the local elections that are at the moment going to be in May. Um, and, you know, in the coverage revealing this, it actually says the following sentence. Little has been revealed of what Reform UK will stand for. However, it is believed the party will push for a more lax approach toward COVID-19 restrictions. I mean, firstly, why is Nigel Farage so desperate to remain relevant? He even a few weeks ago when Brexit was like made official, he even came out and was, you know, unceremonious in his like gloating that he basically achieved what he set out to achieve however many years ago. And 
So it begs the question to me, why is he trying to cling on to relevancy? And beyond that, how and why is he still remaining in any form of politics? I mean, his whole political career and his many field attempts at becoming an MP have been predicated upon being anti-Europe and let's be honest, racist and xenophobic. And he has, you know, he has seen the UK leave the EU. So he's my villain of the week because I think, what on earth are you doing? I mean, you had no political relevancy before and you have even less now. And I, I guess he's just, I mean, he is just my villain of a lifetime because for me, it just make, it makes no sense. I mean, without a Brexit agenda, what what, what is he trying to represent? I mean, you guys can probably extend to this because I really... I'm confused as to why. Well, I, can, I can tell you the reason absolutely without a shadow of a doubt as to why uh, Nigel Farage is doing this. And that is because he needs to get paid. Um, he, you know, he, it was, it's only what, 12 months ago that he was um, um, launching his last political party and selling lifetime membership for a thousand pound or whatever it was. And, you know, it, th- this is this is cash. This is cold, hard cash. He will want to be selling merch. He will want to be uh, getting members and, you know. What are his I personal think- financial circumstances? I, I mean, is he, is he, I'd assume he's quite well off, no? I think, I think he, 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 I think he comes across as more well off than he actually is. But of course, we do know that he is, uh, he is an expert when it comes to wealth management because of his <laughs> fortune and freedom uh, newsletters. Of which, and a hat tip to um, my my old pal Steve Anglesey and pal of this pod. Um, I'm sure we'll hear from him again soon. Steve Anglesey, who put these out on Twitter earlier. Here are some of the titles for the recent newsletters. Peggers can't be choosers. I'm not sure what a pegger is, um, but they can't be choosers. How to get an, quote, exceed, exceeding great booty. What? Exceeding, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Here's another one. Here's another one. You're going to be, capital letters, fully connected to this soon, smiley face. And then finally, it all began with an insult. They sound like Mills and Boone books. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There certainly is an element of grift to all this. But it's also, it's very difficult to give up the limelight, isn't it? If you've been at the point that you've been invited to the White House and you've been inside Trump Tower and his opulent gold toilet or whatever whatever that was that, that he was pitching inside. It's very difficult to give the word. I don't think it'll work. He um, got by before because what he was selling people was a feeling that they didn't really like the world as it is now. And he could pin that to one specific thing, which was membership of the European Union. Yeah. Now that's gone. So he's kind of grasping around at things that don't yeah. seem quite right. So he's like, oh, the BBC, we don't really like that. Oh, the National Trust putting plaques up to say that people were involved in the slavery trade. That's a bit off. It's all kind of things vaguely attached to each other and it's more of a feeling, but it's not really a proper policy objective um, that, that other parties can actually nail down. So I don't, I, I don't anticipate him having any electoral success whatsoever. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, actually. I... I, I don't really know how this ties in with the party that Lawrence Fox is supposed to be setting up. I presumed initially that they were one in the one in the same thing, but I'm not quite sure. What a that pair. They, well, I think different parties, indeed, but just named really similar. Very names. similar names, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a kind of weird party for people who you know they don't they don't really <laughs> like the world. 
<laughs> We're a party for the generally miffed. Yeah, it kind of it kind of is. But once upon a time, you could absolutely nail that down to you don't really like the world as it is now. Well, leave the European Union and basically everything will be just fine. Because if you look at the policies they had in the past, well worth going back to, and this is off the top of my head, but the 2010 UKIP general election manifesto included taxi drivers having to wear uniforms. It was one of the Uh, best manifestos of all time. Making the The um, circle line line on the ground a circle again. And what was the name of the guy who was leading them then? He was a member of the Lords, wasn't he? Farage wasn't in charge then. No, he wasn't. Oh, That's right. Um, oh, I, can't I can't remember. I can't remember his name. I, I think do... even Farage said it was the worst manifesto <laughs> ever written. But the, one of the other things was making uh, making staff on the railways dress smartly to return glamour to the to rail transport. <laughs> yeah, there's something about going to the theatre as well. But he the, 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 oh, yeah, you got to dress I... smart and go to the cinema. Oh, that was it. Go to the theatre. L- let me have a look. What was this? What was this guy called? It was a it was a fantastic manifesto. I mean, the thing is that in those it was so much fun we had that mad um that mad fella who called who, who spoke to the to the uh ukip conference in london who spoke to the the um ukip ladies and called them all slags i think <laughs> no it was it was something like slatterns was it, it was some kind of no, no it was sluts i think wasn't it and oh, and i no. think the the old the old english term for it is uh is is someone who maybe doesn't um, keep themselves tidy. Keep oh, and then, and then when Michael Crick asked him about it, he yeah, hit him he over the head with the manifesto. manifesto. <laughs> the, the leader that I was struggling to remember the name of was um, Baron Pearson of Rannoch. So he was the leader in 2010. And I distinctly recall at that time, the BBC had a daily show called The Campaign Show. And he went on and John Sopel was presenting it and asked him all these questions about this ludicrous manifesto. And he got very uppity and went, well, I didn't come on here to answer questions about the manifesto, <laughs> which he clearly not read. I mean, the thing is, we laughed, didn't we, back then? And they, we made and they fun won. of them, and they won. Yeah. I mean, that is the sad, that is the sad thing. Yeah. That is the sad thing about it. And I've been to UKIP conference, and it is, it's bonkers. It's just insane. How many details do you feel that were lost in that trip? Uh, well, um, I, I, I'll tell. I've told this story before, but it's worth retelling. Well, we've got two minutes. Um, Steve Anglesey, who's been mentioned a lot on this podcast, hasn't he? Decided it'd be funny, frankly, to send me to UKIP conference, which was in Torquay, um, to try and find Manuel. That was literally my brief, um, and I and it was when uh, they were they were um, uh, uh, electing a new leader, um, and it was when Anne Marie Waters was was there. So there was some news value in it as well. Um, I, I don't know if Steve thinks that the Faulty Towers is a, is a documentary. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't find Manuel. Um, I did manage to find an, a, a, a waiter in a in a hotel that uh, that was from the EU. So I almost, I almost, I almost found it. But actually, um, I left at about two in the morning. I got bored of Turkey and left the hotel at two in the morning. I think and drove home. So yeah, quite a lot of brain cells were lost. I I I. I, I you you work i don't know what i'm trying to say here basically good job yes <laughs> thank you thank you i went little, straight to manchester on the head <laughs> I, well i just I, the thing with farage and obviously with ukip as well as by extension is that i just i guess the reason that i made him my villain of the week is because i just don't understand how he thinks that he can possibly recycle himself again like i mean yeah. it's like it's like the equivalent of like an old pair of socks that have been through the washing machine too many times like stop trying to you know make yourself something new like 
you had one policy. I mean, he didn't achieve Brexit, but he has been alive to see Britain or the UK leave the EU. Just let it lie. Mm. Like this attempt at, you know, a rebirth, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. I mean... Well, I, I think that he um, he saw people like Piers Morgan and Anton Deck go out to the States and it didn't quite work for them. And they came back and everything was great again. Of course, his big plan was also when, when Donald Trump was elected, he would go out there, he'd be presenting on Fox News, you know, he'd be the big star of the, the alt-right in the States. And it didn't quite happen for him. And he's he'll be, wanting a gig on, uh, he'll be wanting a gig on Trump TV, uh, no doubt. Well, he'll probably get a gig on um, GB News. Is that yeah. Andrew Niels' new... Uh, well, new let's, TV venture. Let's 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 um, let's hold. Uh, let, 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 let's wait and see for GB News. You never know; it might not be as bad as you as you think. Oh, and someone, I do. Someone's I'm, angling for a job. I've got a lot of time for Mister <laughs> Neil actually, and my phone number is audible. So <laughs> I want I want Nigel Farage to end up being like I don't know, like Donald Trump's like sort of vo- sort of voice through Twitter. So because obviously Donald Trump's been banned, Nigel Farage's account just becomes Donald Trump's kind of sound. Or his um, what's the word like his mouthpiece? That's what I because I feel like Nigel Farage does just want to, if not take up residence inside Donald Trump, certainly wants to end up very very close with his friend. So wow. that would be well, they could go and live in that golden lift, um, which Matt thought was a toilet. <laughs> That's why you were never invited back to Trump Towers, Matt. No toilet. <laughs> I thought it was a toilet as well. Well, maybe I'm sure Donald Trump does have a gold toilet, but it's a very famous picture of Farage yeah, with Trump a, and the sort a, of bad boys of Brexit outside the golden lift. And you might just be able to see Matt with a squatting in the background there uh, inside the lift. Um, well, listen, I think we have come to an end, dear listener. Go out and buy the printed product um, now. It's got one of the best uh, front pages the New European has had for a very long time. It's a real cracker and it's, it's got amazing. loads of... That's I don't know point. if you guys were watching BBC News... Um, just just at the moment that the news came down that Trump had been, when it even mentioned the fact that Trump has been impeached, um, came through. They they used our glorious front page to um, to sort of highlight what the rest of the world was thinking about Trump. Um, so that is that is great news. It's a it's a smashing uh, a smashing edition with lots in. Go and find it now. We will be back next week. Um, thanks to Ian Dunn. Thanks to Cash Boyle. Thanks to Matt Withers. And Uh, Thank you to Mr. Campbell, who's going to blow on his bagpipes. Here you go. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 